The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So this is uh, considered in the tradition a very important, maybe probably essential way of training the mind to learn these seven factors and then through the course of a sit or even just one short part of a sit to check in about how they're doing, are they there, and to see how they support each other, how one leads to the other, and then with a lot of equanimity present, then you see how much easier it is to have the continuity of mindfulness, how much easier it is to investigate what's skillful and unskillful in that moment, how much easier it is to feel the persistence, how much easier it is to feel the joy, see the joy, relax into the joy, to feel the tranquility. Saida Utejaniya talks about, you know, from a person who's practicing point of view, we're really just doing the three, the first three. We're having the intention to connect and sustain mindful awareness, to be interested in what's skillful and unskillful, and to to the degree we see that it's beneficial to see what's skillful and unskillful, to be inspired, to be persistent. And then the others just flow naturally. I mean, even the first three do as well. But we don't really try to be equanimous. We're interested in what allows for the natural arising of equanimity. So before I say more, just any comments or questions about the guided meditation might be good just to take a few minutes. We'll have small groups tonight. And so in the small groups, it would be nice for people just to talk about how any of these seven factors show up in your life formally, when you're sitting informally at any other places the relationship between these different factors, how they're related. And then, of course, uh, what we talked about last week, the five hindrances, and how you notice you the mind feeds, strengthens the hindrances, how the mind, with wisdom, can weaken them, can cause them to fall out of the mind or to get sort of lose their strength. But any comments that seem relevant to bring up our questions about the instructions during the meditation before I go on. Anything that's important? Yeah, Ben. I noticed that, especially in the beginning when I sit, um, and the instruction is to bring my attention to my breath, the... my. At first, it seems so simple. It's, it's like my attention is the spotlight, and I, you know, kind of place it on my breath. But... Usually, when as I sit, I realize there's a color t- or an, there's a quality to the intention. You know, there's a there's a feeling of I I, I want to get something out of the uh, the sit, or I'm worried about something, and that that factor of the attention can get in the way of relaxing. And so, in order to go deeper, it's it's important for me to refine that attention if that makes any sense and and that 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 
that still feels very subtle for me to do that because it, it at first it feels like just enough to be able to pay attention to one thing rather than what is what is this attention that I that I'm experiencing. So no question, I, I suppose. Yeah. But just in terms of the seven factors of awakening, you know, we can understand what Ben just said in terms of the second factor of investigation. Investigation of the law, right? The law of karma, the law of in the law of what's skillful and unskillful. So as you described it, you know, you're seeing that the various kinds of effort and how the mind pays attention, that it matters, right? And so we're learning through that process of investigation what kind of intention or attention, I should say, what kind of attention and what kind of effort leads to the body and mind getting bound up and what kind of attention and effort leads to more continuity and more release, more understanding, right? So that's what's meant by that second factor, exactly as Ben described. The mind is noticing that it matters. That's another way of where it's traditionally translated, investigating the law. The law, that, what that means is the mind sees it matters. How the mind's relating, what the mind is doing matters. How does it matter? Well, that's the connecting of the dots. Oh, if I'm relating in this way, if I'm paying attention in this way, this is what happens. And so the thing to remember in that moment, see, this is where all these seemingly complicated maps start to just come online. Then we remember, well, how should I pay attention? Well, then we remember, well, the second... Uh, step of the Eightfold Path is right intention. And the Buddha says, yeah, well, if you use as your motivation, as your intention for paying attention, if you use kindness and compassion and the quality of generosity or letting go, well, that might work. So try it. Or if you use the opposite, notice if it doesn't work. And then you confirm that law. You know, if you're stingy with your attention, instead of compassionate, if you're cruel, or instead of kindness, if you're harsh, you'll see, no, things are getting tighter. Okay, I've just investigated the law. The law has come alive, right? I saw it directly. Harshness, forcing things, leads to things getting tight. Not to understanding, not to continuity, not to the release. Anything else? Yeah, Raha, please. It's the second time that it's happening for me that um, when I have uh, more concentration and I imagine I would be more relaxed, um, I'm aware of pains in my body. And then as soon as my mind runs away again, I don't feel as the soon pain. As your mind my right, my mind run away with thoughts. Mm. The pain goes away. And then as soon as I come back to my breath, I feel the pain. Uh, it happened Sunday too. I, uh, during meditation, I was feeling the pain in my body. And then when I left the meditation, I had no pain. Yeah. And it happened again tonight. And I'm thinking... Um, when I'm having that heaviness or pain in different parts of my body, how how can I converse with myself generosity or kindness? How could that 
relieve the pain. And so just to comment again in terms of the seven factors, so this just reminds us that most of the time we're sort of working at one and two, you know, if we're lucky. If we're not just lost in thought, most of our practice is one and two, uh, some continuity of mindfulness, and when there's enough, you can't really do two unless there's enough continuity of mindfulness. Then we can investigate the law, like what's causing the suffering or stress, what's supporting the release from stress, right? And so that's really where your comment, question, Raha, is about one and two. And that, and it's just interesting, like part of what she described is arises from the uh, law beginning to be illuminated, right? Where you, like, it's interesting that when the mind does get distracted, the pain in the body goes away. And so in a way, like, why don't we just use that as our main strategy in life, to be distracted? And the problem is that then we're dependent on being distracted. It's like we have to stay busy Otherwise, there's that stress in the body that we come back to. So that's kind of what just paying attention in daily life reveals. Like it's stressful to keep my life in motion, always have something more to do, to be afraid of just, like even when we go to bed at night, then we can't even be there. We need a book or we need the TV on until we fall asleep because we don't really want to, feel what's there. So then then the question you asked is, well then how, so there's that body of pain, or sometimes teachers call that the body of fear, or the sort of, we call it dharma pain sometimes, meaning it, it takes a certain amount of balance, a certain amount of clarity to even notice it. And when we're just in the flow of daily life, it seems like our body's doing fine. And then the mind settles down a little bit and it's not fine at all. It's really actually quite unpleasant. So that's, that's kind of the often difficult threshold, the challenge to a deepening, the deepening of the practice. Because here we'll be compelled to use all kinds of intentions or motivations, but we'll find if we just stick with it long enough that only three motivations help at this point. Kindness, compassion, and letting go. Right? Or generosity is that third one. So these are the three, you know, in the Eightfold Path, the three right intentions. And the interesting sort of provocative question, can we live our whole life with only these motivations? I mean, that's sort of just interesting. When we enter a difficult situation in our life, or like, well, can I do this thing? being a parent or being an advocate or activist or a business person. Can I do that with kindness, compassion, and letting go? Can I function as a human being with kindness, compassion, and letting go? Can I relate to this layer of body pain, this sort of field of discomfort, of tension in the body? Can I relate to that? Can I... Like, does the law, as the Buddha paints it, does it work? Like, if I relate to it with this and I persist, is it workable? And what we can see is distraction, you know, 
the opposite of letting go. So, you know, I'm going to do something instead of letting it be. I'm going to think or get, or I'm going to get greedy, you know, or I'm going to get aversive. I'm going to hit back. I don't like this pain in my body. I'm going to hit back in some way, blame somebody, blame myself, hate life. We just keep seeing that those motivations just deliver more stress. So when we react in some way, just learn from that. That's what investigation reveals. And eventually we just come down to, well, this works. And if we're persistent enough, that's the third quality, then joy. And that's a real shift where the body that feels wrapped up in pain, all of a sudden, because ultimately, no matter how contracted the body is, ultimately, it's just nature moving. As tight as pain, physical pain, emotional pain, any unfinished business in the body, heart, mind is, ultimately, it's just stuff moving. And so as we begin to open to piti, joy, rapture, it's the mind's beginning to intuit that everything's moving, and it's moving freely. And the heart begins to trust that. As the heart trusts it, that's the ease of tranquility. Right? Resting, trusting that contentedness. Like, I don't have to take control of this situation. I can trust the nature of the body and mind. So there's some tranquility. Instead of having to be the doer, I can be the beer. I'm being with this. Right? And then the heart-mind settles into a deeper stillness. That's the sixth factor concentration, or that settledness, stability of mind. And then that leads to deeper states of equanimity, that great impartiality of the heart. So what I would do is when, when you feel inspired enough, then remember the, you know, like the pointing out instructions from the Buddha. Okay, honey, let's try non-greed, non-aversion, non-cruelty here. Let's, and let me stick with it enough because I can't just expect because that's impatience. Like, oh, I'll be kind with this unpleasant feeling in the body for a little bit, but I expect some payoff. Well, that's greed. So then it's not going to work. It's going to get tighter. So it actually has to be real patience, real kindness, not kindness in order to get the result because that would be greed. It's kindness for the sake of kindness, compassion for the sake of compassion, letting go, letting be, contentment, a generous showing up for its own sake. And then, if, and this is the tricky thing because the persistence won't arise, that sort of energy to persist won't arise until we start having intuition that this will really work. But how do we have that intuition unless we persist? So this is why one and two is where we are for a long time. Because that's why, you know, if you get a good Dharma talk from somebody, an inspiring teacher, or you read a good book or something like that, you might be willing to persist before you have your own results. But that's how you get your own results, right? So there's always that tricky place in practice where we, we have enough to sit down and to investigate some, but do we have enough confidence, faith to persist before we have our own direct 
evidence that this works, that this leads in a good direction. Yeah, Haya. You know, I noticed today when I was sitting and listening and I felt over the last few weeks, I felt more alert today and really was here. And I mean, I tending to be a little restless and sleepy lately, but today I felt like I was right here. But every time I realized, oh, my mind started wandering somewhere and I went, okay, honey, that's all right. Come on back. You can come back. Isn't that in a sense of, I mean, instead of being angry with, okay, you're not doing this right. You're not whatever. Um, but I don't know what else to do when I'm sitting there and my mind just starts going off. So I don't even realize it until I'm somewhere. And then I went, oh, let's come back. It's okay. You know, instead of getting all uptight about, you know, is that is that what I'm, is that skillful or not? I don't know. Yeah. And that's the real, you know, that's the threshold. So this is interesting. So in terms of the Buddha's instructions for that first quality of mindfulness, which really means the continuity. So what, how do we feed that continuity, which is the opposite of being scattered or distracted? How do we feed that? How do we set that emotion? So the Buddha says, now what is the food for the arising of unarisen mindfulness as a factor of awakening or for the growth and increase of mindfulness as a factor of awakening once it has arisen? There are mental qualities that act as a foothold for mindfulness as a factor of awakening. Well-purified virtue and views made straight. To foster appropriate attention to them, this is the food for the arising of mindfulness as a factor of awakening and for the growth and increase of mindfulness as a factor of awakening once it has arisen. Right? So virtue, well purified virtue means that we're not uh, the mind's not being pushed around by remorse. But we feel good about the day we've lived today. You know, we feel there's no unfinished business disturbing the mind, that's one, and views made straight. Well, this would be something like just on a superficial level, not like deep, you know, seeing emptiness everywhere, seeing the absence of a permanent self anywhere. Not that kind of right view, but just views made straight, meaning uh, some basic sense that the basic cause for suffering is this mind isn't paying attention enough. I'm just not, the mind is not interested enough. And so I do, the mind acts out of habit, which then creates problems that I have to fix. So I'm going to pay attention. And that's really, I mean, that's just a, an insight we all have. I mean, to some degree, don't we all know? Like I went and I did a deep relaxation, I think it was yesterday, and, you know, I, I wasn't paying attention and I stepped on her foot as I was, you know, we were going to lie down and do our deep relaxation. And it's like just something like there was some attitude in the mind, unconscious attitude of the mind, like I don't really have to pay attention where I'm walking right now, right? Or knocking something over. So even on those really basic levels to respect, because we care, to really respect the continuity of wakefulness. 
Because when things are working pretty well for us, it, it doesn't feel risky to let the mind go here, go there. Because it doesn't seem like we, we, the situation requires the continuity. But, you know, if we were in danger, if we were on a really narrow mountain pass, the continuity of awareness would be there. You know, we would, the mind wouldn't deviate from that present moment awareness. So we have to, the views made straight means it matters that we're, whether we pay attention or not. And whenever we think it doesn't matter, that's wrong view. That somehow it doesn't matter. Well, I guess what I'm, it matters when I'm, you know, all of a sudden, oh, I'm not paying attention, and I come back. I'm just wondering, you know, so, but it, in some ways I'm thinking to myself, it's helpful, though, that I'm not getting all upset with myself for, oh, God, you just went off to the wrong direction, you know, and, and being upset, you know. Come on, sit there and think. Listen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean But that's only half of the equation. That's why I brought this up. So okay. that's one half of the equation. The other is this sort of but honey, I really want to be here. Because it's like you can just imagine parenting like when the child does something wrong, it's really appropriate for the parent whatever she or he says not to say it out of anger. You know, to be really kind. But it's also appropriate for the parent to explain that this is why you shouldn't be doing that because it's dangerous. You know that's why I'm asking you to let me know when you go outside or to you know be home by ten o'clock or whatever. You know, so you're you're reminding the mind like why I want you to be with the breath, why I want you to be with the sensations of the body, because. It's a training to be in the present moment. It's not that the body or the breath is important, but being present is the cause for safety. It matters. It really matters. So that's the thing. Like We have to get a sense that it matters. And that the trouble is that uh, the danger arises over the long haul. So it's not like, I mean, it would be great if somehow karma was instantaneous. And so as soon as the mind started to think about something, it was like we got the karma immediately. It wouldn't take us long to get this path. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's over the long haul. So that's why we have to internalize. And that's what children have to do, people growing up. We have to internalize like, oh, you don't do this, not because it hurts now, but because it increases the probability of this bad thing happening. I mean, it's just interesting how much of that we naturally, most healthy kids, naturally internalize. Not immediate things, like if you put a bobby pin in the electrical socket, you're going to get a terrible shock. But there's all kinds of things that we internalize that are not immediate feedback. But we get, oh yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Joseph Goldstein, I don't know where this is, but he says about the seven factors. He says the seven factors, he describes the seven factors as the sap that runs through the Buddha's tree of liberation. A powerful healing medicine that we must actually develop in our own minds. And you might know this from the tradition. It's very interesting that 
when the nuns or monks were sick, uh, what the Buddha would recommend is that another one of their monastic colleagues would chant the seven fa- the teachings on the seven factors for them. So you know you can just imagine somebody with cancer or a bad head cold or dying, and the people, the good friends being around them, just sort of reminding them that there are these inherent natural tendencies of the mind to be continuously present, to be interested in the nature of what's skillful and unskillful, to be persistent. Like once the mind senses what is, is skillful, to have persistence, to be dedicated, and to realize joy and tranquility and concentration, stillness, and equanimity which then feeds, supports the continuity of mindfulness and investigation and on and on. And that is the, the Buddha talks about that unavoidably leading to insight and release, unstoppably, right? So it's not like we can be enlightened or try to be enlightened, but we can cultivate, feed these seven factors. And the email I sent out today is uh, one of the suttas where the Buddha it's the sutta I mentioned last week where the Buddha talks about strengthening and weakening the seven factors and strengthening and weakening the five hindrances. What is the mind, what is the mind doing when it's strengthening the hindrance of greed, wanting? Or what is the mind doing when it's weakening it or the seven factors? Because they're lawful. It's never because somebody's bad. It's always because there's a habit and habits have consequences. So what is the mind doing? There's a story from the discourses uh, where a seeker comes to the Buddha and uh, he says, you know, I'm one of those people that wanders around after the wandering ascetics have had their one meal a day, you know, and he asks some questions. So I'm going to ask you, Venerable Sir, so that he's saying to the Buddha, the question I ask everybody else. Now, in the experience of what reward does the Tathagata dwell? Does the the Buddha dwell? And so the Buddha responds. uh, He says, the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, the one thus gone, the Tathagata dwells experiencing the the reward of the fruits of clear knowing and release. And then he asks, but what are the qualities that when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? So this is the kind of questioning the Buddha likes because the person's asking about cause and effect, the lawfulness, right? So the Buddha says, you know, the fruit I dwell in, the fruit of my practice, of my life of practice is clear knowing and the unshakable release of my heart. That's what's left. Somebody asked Deepama basically the same question. She's the woman you see pictured on the top of the Shurak, one of the teachers, uh, the main teachers in this lineage, this immediate lineage, teacher of Jack Cornfield and Joseph and Sharon and a few other Western teachers. And uh, she was asked, like, what is in her mind? And she said something like emptiness. Was it emptiness, concentration, and metta, loving kindness? Something like that. So that's a nice contemplation. (laughs) So the Buddha basically says the same thing. 
And then the person asks, well, what qualities, when developed and pursued, what supports that? And the Buddha said, the seven factors of awakening. Ah, well, that's good for us to know. And then what are the qualities that, when developed, pursued, lead to the culmination of the seven factors of awakening? The four frames of reference, or the four foundations of mindfulness. Being mindful of the body and mind. That's the simple translation of that. When we're continuously mindful of this, the body and mind, then we're going to develop the seven factors. When we develop the seven factors, Nibbana, the full release to the heart, is unavoidable. And then well, what, what allows for that development of the four foundations, the mindfulness of the body and mind, the three courses of right conduct, right speech, right action, right livelihood. When we get our act together, then it's easy to be mindful. When our act's not together, then that will consume the mind, right? And that's, I mean, we know that. When our relationship with our partner is not together, that's, it's going to dominate our mind. Or when we don't, haven't figured out how to earn a living or we're being, living in an oppressed situation, then we have to figure out how to have enough safety. So it's a great privilege to be able to do this practice because a lot of beings, a lot of human beings, are busy surviving whatever is difficult for them, whether it's just poverty or some kind of war or oppression of some kind. And they can't even have the uh, uh, harmonious life right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's just not available to them. Who was it? Mary Beth was telling me about driving. She drove her daughter to um, San Diego. She was moving from here to San Diego. and They drove, I forget what state it was in, Missouri or Oklahoma. There's some huge meat processing place. And she said, seemingly for miles, it was just like solid, I'm assuming cows, just waiting for you know the processing, the killing of these animals for meat. And uh, what came to her mind was the people who live and work there, and like what that's like. And uh, I mean, I, I'm sure not all the jobs are completely unbearable, but you can imagine a lot of the jobs would be would be hard to sort of really relax and be undefended when what you're doing most of your day is involved with a lot of suffering and anguish. Um, That would be hard for me, at least as I imagine it, to put down. Anyway, I should end here so we have time, plenty of time for other groups. So again, any reflections you might have about the five hindrances strengthening, (laughs) which we don't want to do, of course, or weakening them, or these seven factors, strengthening or weakening the seven factors, and just generally talking about the law. like The hindrances are just the Buddha's map of what hinders insight. right? And the seven factors, just the Buddha's map of what supports insight. So you may use different words. Don't, Don't get hung up on the seven factors, because whatever you see lawfully 
supports clarity and insight, it's going to be one of those seven factors. You're just using a different word. And then it's great if you want to be more academic and really train your mind to see it with that Buddhist map, and then that then you know, then you have a common language with other people who are using these maps from our teacher the Buddha. So I know Al, we're gonna break into small groups now. Um, so I'm guessing maybe a little bit more than sixty, so let's do twenty two people. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.